is season two of the Design and Transition podcast, a bilingual audio tapestry where we weave interviews, commentaries, and artistic explorations in Spanish and English. We converse about designing for systems level change towards more sustainable and equitable futures, as well as the transitions design is taking in theory and practice. Today's conversation is in English. We will now direct our Spanish-speaking listeners to the end of the episode for the commentary in Spanish. La conversación de hoy es en inglés. Te invitamos a escuchar nuestra discusión en español acerca de esta al final del episodio. Today we will hear from Erica Dorn, dear co-host of this podcast. Erica is a doctoral candidate in transition design at Carnegie Mellon University and an Alfred Landecker Fellow by the nonprofit Humanity in Action. Erica's work has to do with civic mobility, relational democracy, and the American suburbs as sites of transformation and change towards equitable and just futures. Let's listen to Erica. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yes. Hi, Alex and Sophia. Thank you so much for having me on our very own podcast. And yeah, happy to try to summarize my introduction. My name is Erica Dorn. I'm a second year, coming on the end of my second year, PhD in transition design. My background is local community and economic development. Um, I worked most of my career in New York City and in the Hudson Valley region of New York, really committed to the idea of local living economies. Um, so more commit, uh, most of my career was focused on kind of alternative economics and how we bring about more thriving local economies through sometimes anti-capitalist, but sometimes um, just alternative economic models. And so I, I did that through a number of means, one, one including microfinance and crowdsourced banking services or crowdsourced uh, ways of financing the underbanked. That led me into education and, and designing curriculum that educates or brings about a collective process of learning for diverse groups of people in any particular place to then learn how to work together and envision better futures that they can collaborate towards. So I am currently researching people, how people on the move, who I broadly categorize as most humans on Earth today, or actually all humans uh, as being in motion, and how we as a species are connecting to a sense of place and participating in civic life. Um, and I'm looking at that from a number of angles at the moment, but in particular, I'm focused on the suburb of Aurora, Colorado, where I'm originally from, uh, because I think it's a really interesting uh, artifact of globalization as a place. And I'm interested in how the many different kinds of people who are on the move are inhabiting, connecting to, and transforming that place. Thank you so much for that, Erica. I'm so excited to be able to be here with Alex and, and interview you. Now that you were talking a little bit about Aurora, could you actually describe it to us and, and tell us a little bit more about it, a, a bit of context, and a little bit about Last Chance Colorado, because we know that you've been doing a bit of work there too. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I get, actually, it's interesting. I get so excited talking about it, but that's a surprise to me uh, because... To be honest, no, Aurora is um, is a city uh, of about 365,000 people. It's the it's a suburb. It's it's somewhat of an infamous suburb. Uh, it's often people associated with mass shootings. But Aurora is the most diverse city in Colorado. That and another city not far from there called Fort Morgan. More people in the United States live in suburbs than in rural and urban areas combined. And so um, Aurora is a really interesting example of, of a maybe what we might consider um, a quintessential 
American suburb, although as I'm doing my research, I've come to learn there are so many different types of suburbs. I call it my fate. When I left Aurora, I left because I started to travel to other places, and I learned that cities and what I'd been told were developing countries had a lot more to offer culturally, and I think there was a richness that I learned in my experiences of urban areas that I just wasn't never experienced in the suburbs because I the suburbs my experience were designed for more of a consumer culture and that promotes a lot more familial bonds um, and less community interaction. And so I really hadn't been interested necessarily in, in the suburbs as a place of pursuing my research, but I've come to realize that Aurora, in some regards, is my fate, as uh, Bell Hooks would call her, uh, Kentucky, uh, where she's from, uh, mostly because I've just become who I am, because that's where, that's where I'm from. The reason I do what I do, the reason I'm interested in local living economies and how we bring about more living places uh, has everything to do with me having grown up in Aurora. And alongside that, my thought, I'm a fifth-generation Coloradoan of colonial settler ancestry, but uh, so most of my, many of my ancestors have been in eastern Colorado for many generations, um, mostly as farmers of beet farmers. And so my father, um, his his father was the oldest of 12 children, Volga German <laughs> ancestry. And they, my grandfather left the farm and wanted to try to try his hand at, at entrepreneurship. And so he opened a cafe in the town of Last Chance, Colorado, which was just like 30 miles from where he'd grown up. Um, but it's a town at the time that was just a place to get gas, the last place to get gas before you headed on out of Colorado on Highway 36. And so that's where my father spent his early childhood growing up in a cafe where my grandfather made pies. And, you know, Eastern Last Chance has become very symbolic as well of movement and my fascination with mobility, the different kinds of mobility that enable change towards better futures, but also mobility that can lead to a lot of inhumane materializations as well. I'd love to come back to what you said about mobility, but first maybe a question of how has Aurora and Colorado, now that you've accepted it as your fate, changed? And how has that relationship evolved when you look at it as a living thing? Oh yeah, I love that question. You know, I, I just started, uh, in the last six months, I decided to really allow my research to take shape by through interactions with, with Aurora. And so I've come to see, and of course, like this has happened all during the pandemic, but I, I was able to go back to Aurora a few weeks ago, finally, and um, be kind of go with its new set of uh, a new set of eyes, which is for me, I guess, this researcher uh, observant observant servant researcher I guess and it's changed so much and it also hasn't changed at all it's been really fascinating to be in just in this early stage of noticing and witnessing Aurora from me as someone who's vastly different than I was when I left there but also the city itself has become something else I have to get to still no one is, is actually unknowable. <laughs> it's so vast. The um, like anything, I think it's really unknowable um, to a certain extent because everything is is contained there um, in a sense, um, at least in a fractal sense. And so, one of the first things I did when I went back to Aurora was my sister and my young son and I went to the Aurora Mall, which um, is is right. I grew up going to the Aurora Mall, um, and so I went to go see. Well, how is the mall? Because I'd heard that the mall had changed a lot and that somebody had said it was just so run down and something like that. And I said, so I went and I 
didn't experience it like that at all. I actually thought it hadn't changed a bit. It was just exactly as, as I'd left it. It was like I was in high school and we were going to the mall. It was with some of the same stores selling lava lamps and, you know, same group of kids and the lots of police, uh, lots of police were there. I certainly noticed perhaps, um, I guess the change would have been like, there were more stores that were explicitly owned and, and serving immigrant groups. So I think that would have been the main change that is that Aurora has grown more diverse. Um, so, you know, where suburbs kind of were known for a form of white flight, um, Aurora was certainly an aspect of that, but it was also filled with a lot of really cheap housing stock, like the house I grew up in, which was kind of built in probably six six months time as part of a big subdivision that was targeting kind of lower income families. And so as those lower income families gained social mobility or, or didn't and moved out of Colorado or to other places in Colorado, um, it left affordable housing stock that has been accessible to migrant communities or immigrant communities, but also it's been a site of refugee resettlement. And so I've been really exploring how it is that Aurora as a suburb and a place that's built um, in some ways is, is somewhat disposable or kind of how a place like Aurora that's built so quickly and with often what you would kind of consider like paper thin walls sometimes because it's so it's built for affordability, um, how that place regenerates quite quickly. The life cycles of the place um, may happen a little more quickly than, than in a um, maybe even a denser urban area, though I haven't fully kind of validated or that's not empirical research. I'm just speculating and kind of noticing that at the moment. But the other, I guess the other point I'll make about the suburbs that I'm really interested in investigating right now is is how the suburbs are urbanizing, but they're built on the infrastructure that wasn't intended for. And so one really interesting example is Aurora is a city of 365,000, as I said, and it's the most diverse city in Aurora, allegedly, if not the second most, And but it's more diverse than the city of Denver. And so, um, but the city council is part-time and only, I think, something ex- between fourteen and 18,000 as a city council member. So, you know, the government of the city is not developed as if it were the city, uh, to, to meet the needs of the city of its size and the complexity that it is. And so that's just one example of how suburbs have changed and are changing and maybe um, some of the infrastructure, both hard and soft, aren't the kind of reality that is the suburb. Transition design, and I, I guess I find it most generative when I approach my work, is if I were just a creative human being with interests and intrigue to explore ideas without I, I trying to not limit myself to say what, what I think is the academic approach, although I, I'm trying to do that too and learn that because I'm new to academia, but to be honest, what I find most generative at the moment in terms of your question around design is to explore it and in any which way and every which way that seems um, natural and with a high, you know, and with a ethics towards it. In that sense, I'm talking to people, I'm observing, I'm listening, and I'm contemplating in terms of my kind of research at the moment. But what I'm ultimately seeing is the divine potential, if, you know, which I'm not at that space yet, because I'm still in a understanding place. So I'm not ready to materialize any kind of idea at the moment, or, or to take action on any idea. I think ultimately, what I'm working towards is trying to understand what is what could a collective vision of the, the future for Aurora, what might that look like and how do we then begin to work towards a vision and what are those design what are those design interventions that bring us towards a vision of a, a, a better future. In particular, I'm focused on the topic of 
humans being in motion. So that touches on immigration. So I think I'm, but I'm also, you know, because of my background, I'm really interested in the kind of holistic idea of, of a place is living, being a place that is living for all people and, and more than humans as well. I vacillate between calling myself a designer or not. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm really a designer. Yeah, I love that, especially if your interactions are in motion, why, why focus on a static definition of designer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in that regards, uh, we were wondering, this work has to do with many fields coming together. And as you're saying, design has a role to play in this, but it's not fully designed. So in that sense, what do you see is the potential of design or designers in regards to this understanding of place that you're building as a, a non-fixed place or a place that, that is in motion with humans that are in motion. You know what, sometimes I guess what maybe makes what I do or how I'm being uh, or in a, yeah, my process design is that it might be similar to how I guess most of our listeners, if, if they call if you're considering yourself designers, just how we operate, which is to desire to really understand something and desire to understand it from a lot of perspectives, to understand as deeply as possible how biased we could be or might be in whatever we might take action on. I think like instead of thinking that our pursuit is to become unbiased, I think it's really understanding how bias plays a part in what it is we might be creating. And so I guess what I'm saying is that I think for me, design, how designers can interact is to really understand many different perspectives of, of any topic, in this case, how people on the, in motion are creating a sense of place and, and participating in civic life, and then being able to take action, but only from a, from a place of you know doing less harm and ideally leaving the idea that our work could be leaving something better than had we not been there in the first place. And so I think designers have a proclivity to taking action, and I think transition designers have a proclivity to understanding deeply before taking action or knowing that this idea that feels important to me in transition design is this idea that there really is no solution, there are just trade-offs. So we have to understand what those trade-offs are in anything we're doing. And I think the, the other aspect is that designers really aren't acting ever alone, that there's uh, that we're really in, a, in concert with so many elements. So I think there is a difference between a designer or a transition designer or, a, you know, I think if we want to call if I want to call myself a transition designer, I would really think about understanding myself as a collaborator. I think that's actually often how, how nature works too, is this idea that we kind of work, that we understand a little bit more, that we, we play a role, that our role is in concert with the roles that others play and that they're, that all really matters when it's, when we're in, in tuned and, and listening and, and yeah, working in a collaborative way. Yeah. Being part of the ecosystem. So yeah. Thank you for that, Erica. Erica, on that note, we know that you've spent a little bit of time studying permaculture as well as bioregional design at Shoemaker College, amongst other places. And would love to, it sounds like I'm picking up on an influence in, in your work today, but would love if you could elaborate a little bit more about how those perspectives have informed your work. I think maybe, Sophia, this is something I, I really think about that I think we share this idea that for me, life is like one ongoing learning environment, uh, one ongoing lesson. And so it's really always the question of like, well, what what's next to be learned? So for me, permaculture was kind of at some point, what was next to be learned, not necessarily something I was trying to achieve a cert certification in or something like that. But just it happened to be at the point when I started to study 
Well, I had moved from working at the scale of the city. So when I worked in New York City, a lot of this, the microfinance, I did. I, I worked at Axion and I gave, I provided loans to mostly immigrant-owned businesses, and most of those businesses were food businesses. And food businesses in the city depend on food sources that are coming often from outside of the city. So I got interested in supply chain economics, in particular the local food supply chain, because at the time it was such a renaissance around local food happening. And, and so I started to ask the question, well, what's local? You know, and, and we would have, you know, I joined the board of so many and I got interested in it, not just the food system, but the local supply chain of everything and how that led me to looking at the bioregion. And so the idea that no city acts alone, uh, I mean, no city can survive on its own. It survives in relationship to its countryside, to its the region in which it's nested within, which is actually, well, what's a region? Well, often there's different ways to define it. There's, you know, geopolitical boundaries, but there's also natural boundaries to a certain degree, which are watersheds. And so um, that's what led me kind of down this path. And then, you know, watersheds are also boundaries that are kind of changing and on, in constant motion because water is. And water, as we all know, erodes the earth and, and then changes the boundaries constantly. So I got interested in how do we understand a place from the essence of this place? And so I, I studied at Schumacher, this, the story of place uh, through Regenesis was the name of the organization that hosted the conversation. And it was just looking at how every place has many levels of knowing. There's the hydrological, the geological, the social systems. There's, I think, eight different, I think they name eight different systems that are layered and not necessarily in a hierarchical way, but they're layered and working together to, and that these, you know, the geological systems can actually mimic how social systems form and vice versa. And so how, you know, that you can really understand that places end up creating a, a culture, not because the people are there, but because the land and other aspects of it are all combining to create a, a culture or reality. And so I kind of, got, I got interested in that and, 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 Permaculture is a part of that because the idea of permaculture is that we want to understand the different scales of a place and how we depend on those different scales. And then ultimately how, you know, there's other principles in there that I think are really, really great for designers to consider things like stacking functions, like the idea that we should really be designing for things to be useful, very useful in many different domains and ways. And, and the idea of any kind of single use anything is just the opposite of how permaculture would teach us to think. But I, I've actually kind of moved beyond, I wouldn't say beyond, I've moved around that topic and I've kind of come back. I think that for me, questions of permaculture and even bioregionalism are, can sometimes verge on being nostalgic. Yeah, nostalgic of the past in some form, as if there's something kind of, some ideal that we're all we're trying to return to. And I don't, I don't like that thinking personally, or I'm, I'm not finding that thinking ethical in a world that's in motion towards uh, increasing complexity that involves technological innovations. And yeah, I think I think that I, I guess I'm interested in how we rectify or rec reconcile as the word ideas of conservation in the past with ideas of imagining past what we even currently know i think is so we can have most or all beings living well i really like how you pulled out the underlying ethical questions in that kind of idealized or imagined nostalgia uh, of a past that didn't exist i wonder in your work more specifically in aurora how you negotiate that kind of longing within different collective visions of an imagined future. Yeah, it's interesting that um, I sometimes make assumptions about what a you know a typical Aurora, say white 
colonial settler background person like myself maybe might think in a war. I sometimes make horrible assumptions about what you know a t- typical suburbanite might think about regeneration in the future. You know, I think there's a lot of stereotypes about the suburb and the way the kind of behaviors and, and ideas that it creates in people. Um, and I make those uh, I, I I make those assumptions, and I'm sure people make those leaps sometimes. And so I don't want to presume the worst about Aurora and, you know, the majority of its inhabitants. I, I have heard that and noticed that there is a tendency in, in a place like Aurora to, for example, to not want a home, you know, nimbyism is very rampant there. You know, don't build affordable housing near my single family home, for example. So when I try to apply these ideas of, you know, a utopian, regenerative, hybridized future that is where all beings, human and more than human, are living well, I certainly kind of run into a lot of realities about how Aurora might see itself and also see its potential, or how the, the majority of the people there might might see that. But I guess when I go there, I immediately kind of think, well, what's I believe in that there's potential for kind of very quick change to happen because of a lot of incremental efforts. So, you know, things like, I mean, I know everything is about COVID right now, but to be honest, like, you know, for how long have we been trying to get maybe the world to slow down, you know, for us to be able to really, you know, kind of think what's important, take in, you know, slow down. I'm not saying everyone got to slow down during COVID at all, but I know that a lot of People did, certainly those with more privilege to a certain degree. But I, I again, I can't make assumptions about anyone's experience. I just know that the world did slow down during COVID. And that happened in an instance. So I guess my point is, is that I do think, however uh, utopian or ideological, yeah, ideological my thinking is around making, you know, potentially applying ideas of regeneration to Aurora, regeneration for a more livable, as a more, more livable place, I, I think there's probably very little change that I personally could make um, in my efforts as a PhD student to contribute to a reimagining of the suburb. But I guess my, what I'm trying to say is that I think that the bigger challenge is me overcoming my assumptions about what's possible. And also my assumptions about the people who inhabit the place and, and what they might be willing or interested in creating for themselves should they be provoked enough uh, to want to have others live well and, and have themselves live well. The following question, what I was going to ask, it has to do with this because it seems like it's a the PhD project is turning into a very personal project at the same time, right? And these sort of personal work boundaries seem to be becoming each time more fluid. So we were actually wondering, how does your professional work sort of influence your academic work, which is influenced by your personal experiences. So how is everything connected? You were talking about systems a couple of minutes ago. Is that a system for you? How are you handling all of that? I've really tried hard to write out a research plan and stick to it. You know, and then I realized that I'm just most mostly motivated by things that make me feel alive. You know, and so if something for too long just doesn't, my dad would say jive, <laughs> I would, I really do try to stick with it. 
but only to the point that it, it's generative in some form. And so, for example, I, I don't know how I'm, one way I'm dealing with it at the moment is to meander, to get lost and be like, and realize that that is perhaps one of the things that is bringing about the most, I guess, useful knowledge or, or understanding. So, for example, I grew up dancing. I, I still consider myself a dancer, though I don't professionally dance anymore. But I dance and movement are such a big part of, of who I am. I think it's no coincidence that that's kind of made its way into my PhD too. But whenever I'm thinking about borders, immigration, movement, I often will imagine it as a piece of choreography. So that's why I'm kind of so interested in facilitation as a really useful, a really important, essential skill for designers. So knowing how to host conversations, how to connect ideas, how to bring about expression of the individual and the collective, how to understand how to do that in ways that are equitable. And I think those are skills that are needed on earth today. And I sometimes the way I try to go about learning or manifesting some of that is through a form of kind of choreography in my head. So that's one aspect. And then the other is um, I sometimes will imagine like a dance happening in my head around a bunch of individuals moving together and, and, and confronting borders and imagining how we move through them physically and psychologically. And then on the other side, I kind of am going about my IRB process, you know, I'm getting the uh, stamp of approval, making sure my work's technically ethical um, and doing the best I can to follow a strict ethnic, uh, you know, ethnographic process. So I guess my point is, is that I think I, I think it's, you're right. I think there's a combination of, of methods. And, but one thing I'm definitely learning, it's taken me already now at least two years just to try to even tiptoe into what does it mean for me to be a researcher because I, I had an idea of that that maybe had a little bit more of like a white lab coat vibe than the one I'm able to really assume and so I'm trying to yeah reconcile who I am as a human being with how I learn and then how others would be able to benefit from that knowledge I guess one question I keep do keep asking myself I had a friend who used to say, like, if one person showed up to their, their class, say they invited a bunch of people, he would be so grateful that, like, one person showed up to their class. Whereas on the flip side, you might say, oh, like, only one person showed up. So I guess my point is, is that I'm trying to um, balance the idea that my like, PhDs kind of are this pursuit of knowledge for its own sake. But I also think as a designer, I have an urge to want to not waste time in that sense or, or feel like the work that there is a contribution that, that's going to contribute to something needed on Earth. Because as we all know, it seems that there's a lot uh, to repair or to improve. But then on the other side, sorry, I'm ranting here, but the other side of that is the idea that I often think that doing nothing is sometimes the better approach too. So I hope I'm not doing more harm. That's such an important question for all designers and, and really people everywhere to just have front and center. Earlier on, you mentioned that there might not be one single solution, and it's really just a matter of negotiating different different trade-offs in the design process. And I was wondering if you have any advice or call-outs of the biggest challenges confronting advocates of systems-level change today. I think one is to find a way to really um, enjoy what you're doing because I think that's important but I think it's easy I, I also think that in, in, alongside that is to continue to ask like who's this for 
and, and the, the reason I think the joy piece is important is because I can get really tripped up myself on who is this for. For example, I'm a white woman. I'm studying migration. I, you know, I, who am I to be? I'm not even, I, like I said, I'm fourth or fifth generation of a colonial settler background. Um, that said, my um, I personally have struggled uh, as a human being with a sense of disconnection belonging from any place or, or to the earth. I guess I sense I, I lack I've lacked a sense of belonging to the earth, which is a human I think a human condition. So of course I'm I'm pursuing something because I'm longing for that connection. You know, I think that's I think that we pursue often what we need. You know, there's like a, a form of healing in it. So I guess maybe another aspect of it, I think maybe I'm offering hopefully some advice on it, is that we recognize that that which we're pursuing has a lot to do with what we need ourselves or what we're seeking. And so, you know, balance, just knowing that um, and maybe accepting that that might be enough, that your own form of healing, that maybe the PhD can be a form or, or, or that, you know, your work in systems change and design is, is a form of your own healing. And, and maybe that's enough. You know, I think the humans suffer from a lot of, of trauma and a lot of shaming of, of being even human, human beings at all on this earth, as I was describing maybe earlier. And so, you know, maybe there's nothing wrong with your pursuit of systems change helping you to be healed in some form. But I think at the same time, um, especially given the realities of inequity, we have to be mindful of how we, our positionality and who and how, yeah, who's this for? Who, who's your work systems change for and, and what's your position in that? And I think going into that without shaming yourself or doing it, but really investigating that can bring about, I think, a more effective work for you and, and better um, relationship to self. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's it's a it's a difficult sort of journey, right? Trying to understand what you're doing in an ethical form without shaming yourself with many of the of the weights or baggages that have been already developed through research and design. So yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for this, Erica. It has been so fascinating. We don't want to take too much of your time, so we just wanted to wrap up with one sort of fun question. So we were wondering, is there someone unexpected? you've met in this journey that you've been telling us about? I could have never imagined, really, setting out on this journey that I would find my way back to Aurora as a place of research because I really did. And I hate to say this, like I admit, I'm, I'm sad to admit this publicly, that I rejected it. I had been rejecting Aurora for, you know, 20 years. And um, I think that that's admitting like a part of myself that I was rejecting, perhaps. So to be personal about it, I think that's something I'm surprised that's come up for me in this process. But that's interesting that somehow the PhD is kind of bringing me in some ways closer to home. I might not stay there, who knows, for long my research, you know, um, it's a short dwelling period. But yeah, I've been And the other thing is, um, my husband, Ken, is uh, an architect. And what's been really interesting about my PhD journey is just how much our work is starting to intersect more. So he, he builds um, and develops modular housing. So for example, this we're submitting a, to a, uh, for an exhibition that combines our work, which is to design modular housing for people on the move. And so I could have never imagined that when I met Ken, you know, 10 years ago, we would have, we had just vastly different careers. And it's so interesting that they're, they're starting to merge. So I think that's really exciting as well. And, and seeing how letting, letting my, the PhD journey be, um, Trying to keep it, one thing I don't know if other struggle in systems level change is like, I realize I can get really operational from the head up and often forget to connect that to really to my heart. I have to keep reminding myself because systems kind of even that notion of 
really provokes kind of a disembodied sense of our world. And so I'm trying to, I think, maintaining a sense of embodiment in the work. Hola a todas y a todos que nos están escuchando. Uh, acabamos de tener a, a Erika Dorn, quien es una de nuestras co-hosts en el podcast eh, Diseño en Transición. Y ella nos platicó acerca de su trabajo en el doctorado. Ella acaba de terminar el segundo año en el programa. Y un poquito acerca de su background, pues es que Erika, debido a su, a su profundo compromiso con las economías locales vivas, eh, su experiencia se encuentra en las áreas de desarrollo económico de comunidades locales y su carrera se ha enfocado en economías alternativas, cómo lograr economías locales prósperas. Ella ha trabajado mayormente en la ciudad de Nueva York y en el Valle de Hudson, en Nueva York también. Y eh, para que tengan un poquito de contexto en cuanto a la conversación que vamos a tener, eh, su trabajo en el doctorado específicamente es una combinación entre sus intereses en economías alternativas y el rol de la educación por medio del desa desarrollo curricular. Para esto, su investigación doctoral se enfoca en cómo las personas en tránsito tienen un sentido del lugar en el que habitan y cómo puede ser su participación en la vida cívica. Y hoy para el comentario pues estamos eh, Silvana Jury y yo, Marisol Ortega. Hola Silvana, ¿cómo estás? Muy bien, Marisol, ¿y vos? Bien, también. Muy inspirada por todo lo que habló. Sí, es una buenísima oportunidad cuando tenemos la chance de hacernos entrevistas a nosotros mismos dentro del podcast y conocer en más profundidad nuestro trabajo y también nuestras historias que un poco son las que moldean por qué terminamos aquí y por qué nos cruzaron nuestros caminos en última instancia. Quizás voy a comenzar primero remitiéndome un poquito a, a este punto antes de seguir avanzando más en temas que charló Erika para destacar justamente cómo el resultado de, de estos caminos que está explorando y ella nos comenta cómo lo hace de una forma que también tiene bastante intuición porque ella se considera, porque ella tiene también un, una historia como bailarina y aunque no ejerce profesionalmente en ese ámbito eh, actualmente, sí se imagina un poco su trabajo siempre como coreografías, que eso es bastante interesante también como una imagen para pensar el tipo de trabajo que hacemos eh, o el tipo de, de acciones o intervenciones y vamos a estar tocando este punto. Quizás en ese sentido algo interesante de, de la trayectoria de Erika es estos diferentes espacios en los que participó y cómo ella nos contó que fue aprendiendo diferentes tipos de, de vínculos con los lugares, con los territorios, pero también este reconocer profundo o importante de que los lugares o territorios no son estáticos, sino están en constante movimiento, así como lo están las personas que habitan, pero también las otras criaturas no humanas. Entonces, bueno, en un momento le consultábamos sobre el vínculo entre la movilidad física y la movilidad social y también el cambio social, y ella lo que nos plantea desde, desde esta perspectiva es que vea su trabajo de alguna forma como facilitadora, especialmente facilitando diálogos, adoptando diferentes formatos. Ella en un momento nos habla de, de, una, suerte de, de una serie de talleres que está trabajando, que estuvo trabajando y una que está planificando, y dinámicas como fishbowl, que se llama en inglés, o diferentes formas de, de generar diálogos para 
empezar a imaginar eh, lugares o espacios o territorios de otra forma, cómo serían, hacia dónde se moverían o queremos que se muevan esos cambios. Y en esto quizás algo interesante para vincular, eh, y te pido Marisol si, si querés comentar sobre este punto, es justamente sobre la pregunta del rol que juega uno, en su caso el rol que juega ella, Erika, o cómo se ve a ella como diseñadora o quizás no adoptando ese término. Sí, siempre ha sido algo bastante interesante ¿no? que, que ha surgido en nuestras conversaciones antes y, y durante este episodio, que pues ella viene de otros ámbitos, pero llegó a la Escuela de Diseño en un programa que se llama Diseño para Transiciones. Entonces, eh, ella nos comenta que siempre está esta duda entre si llamarse diseñadora o no, pero lo que sí nos dice muy enfáticamente es que lo que sí sabe por la ciencia cierta que es lo que hace son procesos de diseño, porque así es como ella piensa eh, acerca de las formas en que ella eh, opera ¿no? a la hora de facilitar estos diálogos, que una de las cosas que ella ha aprendido a través del programa es la importancia de siempre tratar de comprender algo en profundidad y desde múltiples perspectivas y también entender que uno pues siempre va a tener un sesgo, ¿no? Y que el chiste no es tratar de eliminar esos sesgos, porque muchas veces va a ser imposible, sino de cuáles son las medidas que uno puede tomar desde el lugar en el que uno está para, pues ya sea, tratar de incluir a otras voces que tal vez puedan ser contrarias a, 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 ese, a esos sesgos que tenemos o eh, tomar ciertas medidas en las cuales uno puede hacer daño y tratar de dejar las cosas, dejar el mundo mejor de como lo encontramos. ¿no? Y que ella también reflexiona acerca de este hecho de que no hay solución sino lo que ella llama compensaciones, que necesitamos saber cuáles son y que, cuáles son estas y que también uno de los aspectos en los que ella sí se siente diseñadora es que no le gusta trabajar sola y que sabe que no podemos trabajar en aislamiento y tenemos que conectarnos con otros para poder lograr este tipo de, de labor ¿no? que, que pues muchas veces uno llama diseño. Exacto, y al hablar, al entrar entre estos temas, en estos temas, un poco empieza a tocar el aspecto de la ética en varios niveles. Por un lado, con el rol, o bueno, cómo nos entendemos como diseñadores en general o no, eh, cómo es la naturaleza de este trabajo, que un poco justamente lo que estábamos mencionando es que esto es ver al rol del diseñador en, desde otra manera, la que es más tradicional actualmente, sino que también tiene que ver con dos aspectos más. Uno, cómo se posiciona uno en general, cuál es la actitud que tomamos, como decíamos recién, a quién le damos las voces y a quiénes no, cuáles son las repercusiones de nuestras acciones o hasta qué punto es mejor no actuar, pero al mismo tiempo tiene que ver con las tensiones que empiezan a aparecer cuando uno se para en este espacio como investigador o investigadora. Y ahí surge otro tema en discusión con ella que tiene que ver con hasta qué punto uno se, se entiende como, como un investigador quizás más clásico, como existe en otras ramas del conocimiento, eh, lo que ella hablaba como de la investigación más académica, 
una investigación que empieza a tocar bastante el, el ámbito de las artes y que puede ser mucho más flexible, abierta, guiada por la intuición, quizás por las emociones. Y ahí es donde vuelve a tocar, o bueno, no, nos lleva a nosotros a pensar en esta idea que, que comentábamos antes de ver este proceso como una coreografía, como un baile, y un, bueno, un ir y venir y estar explorando, tratando de comprender mejor y observando y no siempre eh, apurándonos hacia la acción. Al menos ese es uno de los, de los ángulos que puede tener esta visión un poco más ética. Pero ella también mencionó otros. Y creo, o sea, ética y también un poquito más eh, hasta holística, ¿no? Que incluye no solamente este aspecto eh, estrictamente racional, que ella lo ejemplifica muy bien con esta parte cuando menciona que ella veía a la investigación como usar este esta bata blanca no de investigador en tu área de en tu laboratorio y que es, es muchas veces esa visión que uno tiene de los investigadores pero que sí o sea tal vez sí hay esta este aspecto de rigor pero también incluye otro aspecto también eh, tal vez un poco más eh, sensible o artístico, que ahí yo sí veo a, a Erika, digamos, implementando su espíritu de diseñador por medio, o de diseñadora más bien, por medio de este background que ella tiene de, que, de ser eh, bailarina, ¿no? Que pues eso también, el hacer una coreografía, el poder ejecutar cada uno de los pasos, pues tiene aspectos de diseño tal vez no de formación, de diseño industrial o de diseño gráfico, pero al final es diseño porque tienes que arreglar una serie de elementos de cierta forma intencional, que para mí pues es prácticamente como dándole, como decimos en México, palomita a todos los aspectos que, o a muchos de los aspectos que uno puede considerar como diseño. Y lo que dices tú, Silvana, también muy importante, ¿cuáles son esos momentos en el que tal vez tienes que hacer una pausa? Que en el baile tal vez pues se ve como parar el movimiento, en la música pues en silencios, eh, en el diseño gráfico pues en, en, en el espacio en blanco. Y ella dice pues muchas veces hacer nada, es, el mejor, es la mejor forma de abordar ciertas cosas en ciertos momentos, ¿no? Entonces, ¿cuáles son esos momentos en el que uno no va a hacer nada, entre comillas, porque está haciendo una pausa y cuando entra, pues, otro tipo de acción, tal vez un poquito más visible? Esto también eh, se vincula con otro punto que estuvimos discutiendo con ella y es la parte que tiene que ver con una transformación a nivel personal o individual. Todo proceso de investigación tiene un, una parte que es eh, la forma en la que uno va cambiando a medida que va transcurriendo este proceso, pero evidentemente, especialmente en un proceso que se vuelve tan personal. Y en nuestro caso, en el caso de Erika, es un... un un ejemplo perfecto, como toda esa trayectoria, historia personal, tensiones o cosas que creemos y que incluso asumimos, podemos llegar a, a resignificarlas y también cuestionarlas. Y en ese proceso, justamente ir transitando una especie de transformación que se vuelve, también ella nos comenta que se vuelve súper importante que eso sea parte eh, de nuestro trabajo y que lo reconozcamos, especialmente para las personas que estemos queriendo trabajar en diseño o cambio a través del diseño a nivel de los sistemas. Una de las preguntas 
que le hace nuestro colega Alex es, bueno, ¿cuál es el, ¿cuáles son los consejos que podría dar Erika para cualquier persona que quiera trabajar en este espacio, que cada vez se vuelve más y más popular? Y bueno, este punto de, bueno, reconocer nuestro, nuestro lugar, nuestra, la posición que tomamos, eh, el tipo de transformación, ¿por qué nos interesan las transformaciones por las que estamos trabajando? ¿Para quiénes son? Y también la parte del disfrute, que eso no es menor. ¿Quisieras retomar ahí, Marisol? Sí, totalmente. Ella dice que estos consejos los está dando porque muchas veces ella como que se enfoca demasiado en para quién es esto, ¿no? ¿Cuál es el objetivo que estamos tratando de lograr? Y que tiene que recordarse a sí misma eh, esta parte de, ok, tengo también yo que disfrutar lo que hago porque así es como lo hago mejor. Entonces dice, eso es súper importante, el hecho de que eh, uno sienta, se sienta apasionado y que tal vez en el momento en el que ya no se sienta esa chispa, digamos, tal vez ese, ese es un momento en el que uno tiene que poder reevaluar en dónde está uno, por qué lo está haciendo, tal vez dejar de hacerlo, hacerlo de una forma diferente y que eso mantiene las cosas frescas. Entonces a mí se me hizo súper importante y es una de las partes de la conversación que yo más rescato, tanto por el hecho de que pues es algo que ella está contando desde su experiencia, pero también como es algo, una pieza que pues cualquiera de nosotros puede tomar y puede aplicarla en, su, en nuestros propios contextos, ¿no? Entonces ya seas diseñador o no diseñador, eh, ya sea que estés haciendo, porque yo digo que puede aplicar para gente que está haciendo cambios sistémicos o que quiere hacer cambios sistémicos o, o diseño sistémico o cualquier otra persona que esté trabajando en lo que sea, ¿no? Entonces para mí pues esa es una parte muy rica de la conversación. Sí, tal cual, estoy, estoy de acuerdo contigo. Y quizás, para traerlo quizás más es al cierre, hay una idea que está muy vinculada con esto que nos contaba y que nos aconsejaba Erika, que en definitiva tiene que ver con lo que mencionamos antes, con el reconocer esa trayectoria, las raíces de donde venimos, y en su caso, y es el caso de muchas personas también, conectar con una especie, una idea de, de que hay cierto destino, de que nuestro trabajo toma una forma particular debido a la trayectoria que ha tenido nuestra vida y como nos, nos encontramos trabajando quizás en los lugares desde donde venimos, que es el caso de muchos de nosotros. En el caso de Erika, algo que no les contamos y, y para quienes estén curiosos pueden investigar un poco más, ella está haciendo parte de su investigación en el pueblo de Aurora, o ciudad, en realidad se llama ciudad, de Aurora en Colorado, en Estados Unidos, que es de donde ella viene. Y es un suburbio que tiene muchas particularidades que ella identifica como con mucho potencial porque se vuelve una suerte de ejemplo paradigmático de varias dinámicas eh, entre lo urbano, lo rural, bueno, las dinámicas del consumo y cómo los lugares eh, se transforman, cómo los, las personas se transforman y esta idea de estaticidad o movimiento. Ella justamente está ahora programando algunos talleres sobre este espacio y bueno, esperamos que más adelante vamos a tener más novedades de, de su trabajo y para quienes les dé curiosidad conocer mucho más sobre esto, ya tendrán más novedades. Pero bueno, es súper interesante haber tenido la chance de conocer un poquito más a fondo el trabajo de Erika, que tiene muchas ramificaciones, pero ahora quisimos eh, contarles y enfocarnos en, en algunos de los puntos principales. Así es. Pues muchas gracias, Silvana, por compartir esta conversación eh, conmigo acerca de eh, lo que nos compartió Erika. Y los dejamos con esto. Eh, los invitamos a que escuchen todos nuestros episodios y ojalá que eh, les esté gustando esta segunda temporada. Si tienen cualquier eh, sugerencia, comentario, pues ya saben que estamos en redes sociales. 
y nos vemos en otra edición. Hasta luego. Listening to the Design and Transition podcast, brought to you by Marisol Ortega, Sofia Bosch Gomez, Erica Dorn, Alex Polzin, Silvana Juri, Nandini Nair. With the support of the School of Design at Carnegie Mellon, the audio production was done by Kyle Levy. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter and Instagram as we release new episodes. You can find us at D in Transition. We welcome direct messages about our new guest suggestions, ideas, and comments. Until the next episode.